Hello, my name is Clay Catlin, and this is the worst job ever. second episode of The Worst Job Ever, where we will look through history to discover the most dangerous, unpleasant, unsanitary, and bizarre jobs that human beings have ever worked. Hopefully we come away with a more sympathetic opinion on history's most unfortunate workers. For this episode, we will be traveling to England to learn about two historical jobs related to the natural human process of excretion, and uncover what we can about the history behind the industry of poop and the brave people whose work revolves around it. We should all be very thankful for the modern sewer system. After over 4,000 years of fine-tuning, we should think of this everyday convenience as nothing short of a miracle. Think about it. After we use the bathroom, we push a button and our waste seemingly disappears from this earth, vanished from our lives forever. That is, unless you have bad luck with your roommates, clogging your toilets like some of us have. Regardless, without this masterpiece of science and technology, our lives would be so much dirtier, stinkier, and less hygienic. We should also thank the hundreds of men and women to work every day in dark, dangerous, and disgusting conditions so that we usually never have to worry about where our waste goes and where it ends up. Plumbing and sewers first appeared in human history in the highly advanced cities of the Indus River Valley civilizations of the 25th century BC. Cities like Mohenjo-Daro and Lothal offered private baths and toilets to their ancient residents. From there, historical evidence of ancient sewer systems can be found in China, Mesopotamia, and most famously in ancient Rome where aqueducts, massive works of industrial innovation, brought running water to people's homes, and men and women chatted in latrines while passing around a sponge tied to a stick that they communally used to wipe their butts. From there, the story of plumbing and sewage takes us to early Victorian London, a complicated city with alternate personalities. One was the charming cosmopolitan city peopled by wealthy aristocrats and their servants. The other was the hectic, filthy, reeking metropolis, where the majority of the city's destitute and starving populace lived and went through great lengths to find a way to make ends meet. In 1851, the journalist Henry Mayhew wrote an exhaustive four-volume book called London Labor and the London Poor, where he recounted and analyzed the fieldwork he had done speaking with and living among London's many impoverished residents. At the time of Mayhew's writing, London's sewer system was a stinky labyrinth thousands of miles long, composed of a disorganized series of stone tunnels dating back to the Roman period, that were constantly being built into and over one another, and that all led their filthy currents into the faded black water of the River Thames, which was called the Great Stink during the 1850s. Among the workers that Mayhew surveyed are many colorfully named laborers who worked in London's official and unofficial industry of sewage and sanitation. These include mudlarks, unprivileged youngsters who waded through the filthy mud of the River Thames to find anything of valuable and sell it for a paltry sum. Mayhew also describes his interactions with nightmen, highly skilled and often richly rewarded workers who were contracted by the city to travel into its sets pits and remove human excrement via bucket under the cover of night, often while up to their waists in waste. But most distinct and interesting of the sanitation workers that Mayhew met are the sewer hunters. These men travel nightly into London's dizzying maze of sewers to scavenge for valuables that may have ended up flushed away into the city's underworld. 
They do this illicitly, as the city had closed off the sewer tunnels and forbidden any human entry, and at great risk to life and limb, as the sewer is filled with hazards that could potentially injure, disfigure, or kill any unprepared wanderers. What would an average day look like for sewer hunters? First, they get suited up in the sewer hunter's signature outfit that clearly demarcates them from the rest of the city's labor force. Mayhew describes sewer hunters as habited in long, greasy, velveteen coats, furnished with pockets of vast capacity, and their nether limbs encased in dirty canvas trousers, and any slops of shoes that may be fit only for wading through the mud. They carry a bag on their back, and in their hand a pole or feet long, on the end of which there is a large iron hoe. The uses of this instrument are various. With it, they try the ground wherever it appears unsafe before venturing on it, and, when assured of its safety, walk forward, steadying their footsteps with the staff. Mayhew also mentions that sewer hunters strap a policeman's lantern to their chest before venturing into the dark caverns of London's underbelly. By doing so, they light the path ahead of them while walking forward and light the water below them while stooping down to search for treasures hidden under the muck. After setting out into London's sewers, many dangers await the sewer hunters. The brick foundations of London's older sewer tunnels are often fully or partially collapsed. Sewer hunters have to deftly scramble over these obstructions or navigate other passageways when the rotten bricks have completely eclipsed the path. While doing so, the sewer hunter has to be very careful to not upset standing bricks, as doing so could lead to an avalanche that would certainly spell severe injury or death. As a result, the sewer hunter is constantly stooping while working, as contemporary London sewer tunnels were typically under four feet high. The sewer hunter also has to make sure he knows where he is going. Wandering into the wrong tunnel or wrong room with no ventilation and limited space could mean inhaling dormant noxious gases, which could mean a nasty, choking death for the unfortunate sewer hunter. Sewer hunters also need to be acutely familiar with the sewer slices and always close to a branch tunnel to retreat down, as when the slices are lifted at low tide, waves of sewer water the size of miniature tsunamis come coursing down the tunnel, leaving an unprepared sewer hunter in a watery grave of human excrement. If the sewer hunter can avoid these natural hazards, he is all the more closer to his reward. However, he must also face a vicious enemy that permeates all of London's sewers. Anyone who has played a fantasy RPG video game will be familiar with this next scene that Mayhew describes. Stories are told of sewer hunters beset by myriads of enormous rats and slaying thousands of them in their struggle for life till at length the swarms of the savage things overpowered them and in a few days afterwards their skeletons were discovered picked to the very bones. Although, in reality, London's sewer vermin were not as spine-tiggling as the army of giant rats that Mayhew recounts in the story, they were a serious problem for sewer hunters. Water rats were ferocious, and their bites had the chance to maim, kill, or lead to serious infection. As Mayhew writes, They are particularly ferocious and dangerous. If they are driven into some corner where they cannot escape, then they will immediately fly at any who opposes their progress. Sewer hunters find an alternative use for their poles as weapons when descending themselves from vicious, pouncing rats. Once the intrepid sewer hunter has conquered or avoided all of these obstacles, he finally reaches pay dirt, using the end of his pole as a hoe to dig between spaces in the tunnel walls where the brick has worn away. He finds valuable metal that has been flushed down the drain and hidden in the walls of the sewer. There are clumps of forgotten coins that have become fused together over the years, ranging from paltry shillings to valuable sovereigns, called conglomerates by Mayhew. Sewer hunters might also find flush jewelry and expensive silverware, which they consider to be signs of good luck. They chip as many fused coins as they can carry away from the conglomerate and leave, taking mental a note of where they found the hidden stash. They only take a partial sum from the massive conglomerate that they have found, 
as they know it'll always be there the next day. And it is, in fact, constantly growing as Londoners lose spare change down the drain each day. Besides, who but their tiny community has the experience and wherewithal to travel this far into the sewers? They stealthily emerge when the coast is clear from constables and come home, divvying up the day's rewards amongst themselves. The amount they get is actually quite a large amount for a day's work, and Mayhew claims that they make even more than the better-paid artisans through their dangerous and disgusting work. So who were sewer hunters? Despite their strange and unpleasant occupation, Mayhew describes them as highly intelligent, charismatic, athletic men. Stranger still, they are incredibly healthy and in excellent physical condition. Mayhew writes that they know illness only by name. This is quite the opposite from the pale, decrepit, wheezing drifters that we might imagine doing this kind of work. There also seems to be a sense of pride and camaraderie among sewer hunters, or shoremen, as they call themselves. Mayhew claims that they turn up their nose at the work of mudlarks, who they consider to be well beneath them. They also work in gangs, which is partly to better protect themselves from rat attacks, and partly to simply provide a sense of companionship in the dark, dank tunnels of the big smoke's underbelly. They know each other only by affectionate nicknames, like Lanky Bill, Long Tom, and One-Eyed George. Mayhew actually seems quite enchanted with the sewer hunters that he meets, often detailing their clever and warm nature in his account. While acknowledging that what they do is illegal, they consider it to be a victimless crime, as the only people who might get hurt through their actions is themselves. One sewer hunter exposes some of the hypocrisy behind the London government's banning of sewer hunting and barring of sewer entrances, when he tells Mayhew, they won't let us in to work the shores because there's a little danger. They fear as how we'll get suffocated, at least they tell us so, but they don't care if we get starved, no. They don't care nothing about that. Despite his affection for this gang of fearless rogues, Mayhew also criticizes them for their reckless spending. He argues that they should focus on buying a nice house or saving for their retirement, which Mayhew claims is possible thanks to their comparatively large salaries. However, he writes that as soon as they distribute a day's haul, they head to some low public house in the neighborhood and spend their hard-earned wages on excessive drinking and eating. He writes that they seldom leave till empty pockets and hungry stomachs drive them forth to procure the means for a fresh debauch. Because of this, they typically live in London's most shadowy, seedy areas. To me, it seems that this reckless spending on fleeting delights makes sense, given the nature of sewer hunters' work. Each night, they risk life and limb, facing death in its most repulsive and abhorrent form. How much will retirement savings mean to these men if they are clawed to death by a horde of rats, drowned in a wave of urine or feces, or buried alive in a sewer tunnel. They live every day like it's their last, because every night could easily spell their end. Despite their unpleasant work, I was quite touched by the sense of community and pride that sewer hunters felt in their work. Although what they do truly qualifies as one of the worst jobs ever, it seems that they have a different outlook. Unlike other poor Londoners who labor daily beneath cruel bosses or oppressively long hours, sewer hunters make their own schedule each day and work whenever they feel like it. Despite having to weigh knee-deep in poop and sewer water, there's something romantic about the nightly adventures of Victorian London sewer hunters. While the rest of the city is sleeping, they suit up and set out to conquer the dark, knowing that a secure source of wealth is waiting at the end of a long tunnel, if only they can overcome all the obstacles that lie in the way. For sewer hunters, another man's trash, or perhaps another man's poop, is truly another man's treasure. Look down on these poor people, it's enough to make you krill. Look down on these poor people as you ride up and down. I'm sure that as a god above will bring your pride quite down. You tyrants of England, your race may soon be wrong. You may be brought into account for what you've surely done. What would you expect the responsibilities of kings during England's Tudor period to be? 
They surely had to make efforts to keep the peace, protect their countries from foreign invasions, and protect themselves from internal insurrections by their own people. The king was also a central figure in law, order, and justice at the time. He also must have had to deal with matters of the church, appointing clergy officials and making sure they were loyal to his vision. However, none of these responsibilities are what we are concerned with today. Rather, we will be talking about what the Tudor kings were allegedly not responsible for, namely, wiping their own butts. That illustrious duty was allegedly passed to the king's personal bathroom attendant, a manservant with a lawfully title, Groom of the Stool. Although we do not know for certain from the historical sources all of the groom's lavatory responsibilities, what we know for certain about the groom of the stool is that he set up a portable toilet called the close stool when the king had to relieve himself. The close stool was essentially a chair with a wooden flap, which led to a metal bowl meant to catch and house the royal excretions. Because it was not connected to any form of plumbing, the close stool had to be cleaned and prepared before and after each use. The close stools of English kings often had seats of soft velvet and must have been far cushier than the toilets of today. After setting up the king's toilet, the groom of the stool would attend to the king while he was going about his business. This essentially entailed chatting with the king and presumably trying not to make too much direct eye contact. After the king was finished, the groom of the stool would inspect the king's excretion to see if the monarch was healthy. He would also clean the pewter bowl that held the waste and disassemble the close stool. Despite my salacious introduction, there is no actual proof that the groom of the stool would physically clean the king's rectum after lowering the drawbridge and dropping the Prince of Wales into the castle moat. However, there is also no evidence to the contrary, so feel free to perform your own opinion on that aspect of the groom's job. The groom also attended to the king's other intimate needs. He prepared the king's bath, made his bed, and helped him with dressing and undressing. Arguably the most famous groom of the stool, William Compton, who served under Henry VIII, even allegedly found messages for the king and organized secret rendezvous for his flings. The groom of the stool was often the only person who saw the king at his most everyday, his most human, his most vulnerable. Because of the delicate nature of the job, the groom of the stool was typically drawn from England's best and brightest during the reign of the Tudor kings. They were typically sons of noblemen or heirs of country estates. The groom of the stool needed to be loyal to a fault, with admiration for the king superseding any revulsion that they felt for cleaning up after him. They needed to be skilled conversationalists and deft learners, as they were responsible for making conversation with the king while waiting on him, giving him counsel when he asked for it, and listening understandingly when he ranted about matters of top political or personal importance when in his private chambers. They also needed to be intelligent, as later grooms were often tasked with managing the royal finances and overseeing financial policy from the shadows of the king's bathroom. Lastly, they needed to appear loyal enough that they would not allow the sensitive information that they were privy to to spread to the other eagerly listening ears of the court. Despite the seemingly humiliating position, the groom of the stool possessed greater power than all of the other royal servants and even some of the nobility. This was not due to his administrative or financial responsibilities, but rather due to his privileged position in the king's privy. The world of the groom of the stool was one of information, secrets, and confidence. Often the king would ask for direct counsel in political matters, as the groom was his most trusted servant and intimate confidant. Indeed, in the eyes of the rest of the court and royal servants, the groom was representative of the monarchy itself. The historian Stephen Greenblatt writes that the groom's duties signaled the groom's public acknowledged intimacy with the king, an intimacy that conferred power not only by virtue of the king's confidence, but by virtue as well of a charisma that extended even to the basis functions of the king's body. The groom was given sensitive information that could reveal the king's inner thoughts on various matters. Henry VIII even once shared his opinions to one of his later grooms that his betrothed wife, Anne of Cleves, was not a virgin, 
due to the slackness of her breasts, a revelation that resulted in the marriage never becoming consummated and Anne never officially serving as queen consort. The groom of the stool also controlled what information reached the king's ears in this private setting. Those who could not get an audience with the king could persuade or bribe the groom to directly relay that information to the king when he was going about his business, or even persuade the king to meet individually with the person in question. The groom could sway the king's opinion of those that he liked or disliked, or legislation and political action that he approved or disapproved of. The groom of the stool wielded a form of power that no other member of the king's retinue possessed, the power of information. This power could be used to make or break ambitious men at court, shift the king's opinion on serious political matters, persuade or dissuade him of a course of action, and directly influence events in England and beyond. As the historian David Starkey wrote, the mere word of the gentleman of the privy chamber was sufficient evidence in itself of the king's will. This power made the groom of the stool feared among the castle servants and envied even among the wealthiest nobles. Outside of the bathroom, the groom often freely wielded his political clout, perhaps to compensate for his seemingly belittling occupation. Occasionally, this great power could spell disaster for unlucky or overly ambitious grooms. This happened to the unfortunate groom Henry Norris in 1536, who served Henry VIII during the later part of his reign and was hanged on fraudulent charges of adultery and treasons, thanks to his support of the king's estranged wife, Anne Boleyn. Other times, grooms tactfully walked a line between servant and confidant and were greatly rewarded for their efforts with material wealth and political power. Such was the case for William Compton, who held over 13 royal positions during his time as groom and amassed a miniature kingdom of manors and farms in rural England, far away from the bathroom kingdom that he lorded over at court. It's pretty clear that the groom's duties are far from what we want in a career today. Dressing, bathing, and cleaning up the poop of a grown man like he was a toddler would be unsavory for most people. However, by doing these duties, the groom of the stool wielded more power and influence than most of us ever will in our lives, because of, rather than in spite of, his bathroom position. The right kind of information from a king is valuable, especially when given in an intimate, vulnerable setting, by one who has cast aside all signs and symbols of nobility and pretension. The groom of the stool was honored rather than burdened by gracing the presence of the king during the most mundane and unroyal functions of his day. Next time you are hunched over on your own porcelain throne, lost in thought in the same way that Henry VIII once sat on his velvet close stool, I hope you think to yourself, if I had a faithful, sympathetic listener here with me who I can unload my deepest thoughts, concerns, and hopes, what would I share with him? Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of The Worst Job Ever. This episode was a lot of fun for me to research and write, and I really hope you liked it. I realize it's a little bit less serious than the last episode, but I thought it was pretty fun, and the whole industry behind where our waste goes is fascinating to me. Typically, I try and have two jobs from different sides of the world, but while researching, I found both of these jobs, which are both from England, and I kind of fell in love with them, so I just knew I had to talk about them in this episode. If you like what you heard, you can like us on Facebook at Worst Job Ever or find us on Twitter at Worst Job Ever Pod. That's Worst Job Ever Pod, no spaces, no underscores, no anything. Please let us know what you think, and if you like today's episode, please come back for more when our next episode is released. 
Our amazing theme music was made by Reishi. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash Reishi Makes Beats. That's soundcloud.com slash R-E-I-S-H-I-M-E-K-E-S-B-A-T-Z. Our lovely cover art was created by Brayden Hinkle. Learn more about Brayden and check out more of his art on his Twitter page at VeryBigFriend. The amazingly talented Simone Sioux is our social media manager. As always, this episode is written and produced by yours truly. Thank you, of course, to WIUX for making this possible. And I hope you'll join me next time on my journey through history's worst jobs. Goodbye.